0: Mark 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still another one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in his eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord.: Thanks be to God. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, you say, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man in his strength, nor the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows you, and that you are the Lord exercising mercy, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to follow you this day. In Christ's name, amen. Um, My first official Sunday at PCPC was January 30th, 2005. And that Sunday morning, the youth pastor, a guy named Mark Davis, was preaching in the pulpit from Genesis 15 on a sermon entitled The Gospel According to Abraham. That was my first time as a staff person worshiping in this church, but it also was my first time worshiping in a Presbyterian church of any kind. I did not grow up Presbyterian. I grew up Southern Baptist. And so this was unfamiliar territory for me. The order of worship had the Apostles' Creed. I thought Creed was a band from the 90s. And when everyone in unison said the phrase, the holy Catholic church, I trembled in my bones. (laughs) A lot's changed. A lot's changed in me, being a part of this Presbyterian church. And today marks my last Sunday preaching or teaching as a staff person at PCPC. Uh, And as you might imagine, I'm doing a fair amount of reflection And I probably will be doing even more in the coming months as I'm heading down to Austin, Texas. What's been interesting is what comes to mind when I am reflecting. I I usually start with the good stuff. I think of the dozens of weddings that I've done from my days as a youth pastor with kids who are now grown-ups and they're starting their own families. That's that's happy ministry. Um, I think of one-on-one conversations that I've had, maybe with some of you, where God has so evidently and so clearly moved. Um, I think of several overseas mission trips that I led with 30 to 50 people on them, most of whom were adolescents, and that we were spared heartache and body ache and every other kind of ache that you could think that might come with something like that. But where I really learned what it means to walk in the Spirit is I led large groups of people on the other side of the world for the sake of the gospel. And then sometimes I think of painful memories because those are there too. Last week I was going on a walk just to clear my mind and to pray. I never seem to do that well when I run, but when I walk I actually slow down long enough to listen. And this memory came to mind of the only time I can remember in youth ministry that I got completely and totally and utterly rejected by a high school student. And I want to tell you his story. I'm going to use the name Tim because he might actually be here today for the sake of not calling him out. Uh, Tim was a Highland Park High School guy. He was popular. He was wild. He was athletic. He was gregarious. He was annoying and he was frustrating to every adult. But all the other students loved Tim. His life was filled with fun and football and flirting. Was not interested in faith. Certainly didn't have time to squeeze in Jesus, but for some reason, Tim really took to me and I really took to Tim. I liked him a lot. He was one of the funner students to be around. He would never come to Bible study, but we ate at Angela's on Saturday mornings, dozens of times. The window special, which doesn't exist on the menu. If you're going to get it, have an empty stomach. It's gigantic. And Tim and I would sit across the table, and we would talk about his life. And I would think about ways to try and introduce him to the gospel in his life. And sometimes he would accept it, and sometimes he would reject it. He grew curious over time as we grew to trust each other. And I would tell you that Tim was all put together on the outside. He seemed really happy, but I knew the real him. He was torn up inside. He knew that the things that he was living for were fleeting and wouldn't last. He knew that he was creating habits that probably wouldn't bode well once he got about three or four years down the road. And I was like a big brother sitting across from him, trying to love him correctively, trying to warn him firmly trying to share the gospel with him, which I did at least a dozen times. And three dozen more times, we talked about God and life. We even read through the gospel of John together. And then his senior year, we went to eat and we sat down and he looked across the table from me just as our food was coming out. And he said, Brent, we're not doing this anymore. I got broke up with by a senior in high school. And I don't know if it was healthy self-confidence or an unhealthy ego. It didn't bother me. But tears started to well up in my eyes. And he said, we can't do this anymore. I don't want to hang out. And I don't want to hear about God anymore. And with tears in my eyes, I looked at Tim and I said, I hope you live long enough to be saved by the mercy of God. And I meant it because I didn't know if he was going to live long enough based on his track record and his habits. His heart had become calloused to my corrected voice. And he had rejected multiple attempts of being offered the mercy of God. And, friends, That is the warning in the parable that Jesus gives today, but the audience is totally different. It's not a word of warning, a prophetic corrective voice coming to those who are wild and living unabashedly in their sin. He's addressing those who think themselves mostly righteous, and most specifically, the actual spiritual leaders of the people of God, and he's warning them not to be callous to his corrected voice. And he's warning them not to have a spirit of indifference towards his mercy. And so I want us to look at this today because I think what we're going to find is, since we're all church-going folk here, maybe you're here for the first time, but for the most of us, we're church-going folk, there's a warning for us in this. Okay, and I want to make a couple comments about the parable itself before we look at the warnings. First, this parable, unlike many of Jesus' parables, was clearly understood. Some of his parables are hard to understand and purposefully so. This one is very clear. Okay? And we know that from the last verse because the people who it is indicting don't have any questions. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. And then second, this parable, unlike some of the others, results in a common, unified response from those who are hearing it. It incites anger in the hearers, and it resulted in a unified outcry, and the outcry was for justice, not for mercy. So whatever was going on in this parable was atrocious enough, was wicked enough to incite the people with unified voice to cry out for swift judgment. No one in the crowd is saying, give him another chance. Give him another chance. And we know this is true because in Mark's account, you have Jesus who is pronouncing after the question, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. But when you look at Matthew's account, we learn that this is actually Jesus repeating what the crowd has said is the proper conclusion. And in Matthew's account, this is what the crowd says Put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the owner the fruits in their seasons. It's harsh language. So there's no doubt in the original hearers' minds that the proper conclusion from this parable is just judgment. It was obvious that justice needed to be served on these rebellious tenants. Okay. And then the second thing, the language from the first two verses in this parable, it's being borrowed and every educated ear in the crowd would have heard it. It's from Isaiah five and it's a prophetic warning that was given to the people of Israel. I'm going to read the first two verses for you. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah five says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And So the language from Mark 12 is being borrowed. Jesus is basically re-preaching a prophet's sermon. But there's a change. In Isaiah 5, Israel is the vineyard that's been planted and is being tended by God himself. But the prophetic warning is towards the vineyard for not producing fruit. The people of God were not producing fruit that was worthy of the person tending the vineyard. But here in Mark, Jesus borrows that language and he changes the focus of the warning. It's no longer on the people of God generally. The warning is for the tenants, the spiritual leaders of Israel. If you back up a few verses, it tells you specifically who these people are. They were the chief priests. These were the leaders responsible for the priestly work for the people of God, the sacrifices so that the people might be forgiven. It mentions the scribes. These were the people who were responsible for the prophetic work for the people of God, for upholding and guarding and teaching the truth. And then it mentions the elders or the rulers, and these were the people who were responsible for the kingly work for the people of God, that they might rule justly over the people and shepherd them well. And these spiritual leaders are the primary audience being indicted and warned. And church, of course, this warning applies to the rest of the listeners that were there with them to any who would see themselves as spiritually mature or spiritually elite. Which I would say is the majority of us in here today. Repentance and change is needed, but it is not recognized and is not wanted, and therefore only justice remains. And so in the spirit of this parable, we can implicitly draw out these two warnings towards people who consider themselves spiritual leaders. First, a warning against the spirit of callousness to God's corrective voice, and secondly, against the spirit of indifference to God's mercy. I only have two points in my sermon, not three. First, a spirit of callousness to God's corrective voice. Look back at the parable again with me. Jesus began to speak to them in parables, and he said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Church, servant after servant after servant is sent. And Israel had a long history of rejecting God's corrective voice. To say they ignored it is probably way too generous. They opposed it, they rejected it, and they responded with hatred, and they responded with violence. The prophet Isaiah was, by church tradition, it reports he was sawn in two. Jeremiah was stoned. This is not something new. They responded with callousness and hatred and even violence. And no one experienced this more than Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Just pause for a second. The poor and the powerless, the sick and the sinful, were enamored with his message. And they too had a unified and response cry to Jesus' message. Even his prophetic warnings. Have mercy. Every sick person, have mercy on me. Every sinful person, have mercy on me. But not these. Not the righteous or those who estimated themselves as righteous enough folk. They refused to listen. They opposed him and his message. And the only ones that we ever see Jesus speaking to harshly are the self righteous When he came and said, in only one spot in his earthly ministry, this is what my heart is like, he said, I'm gentle and lowly. And so when he speaks harshly, you have to press in. That is not his default. And he does it because of their callousness. Brothers and sisters, if you shut the door on mercy, only the door of justice remains. And so in Jesus's final full length sermon, which is in Matthew, he takes considerable time to rebuke the spiritual leaders of Israel. And I want to read a portion. This is what he says. And listen closely. It's Matthew 23, 29 and following woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. We know this is true because only one apostle is going to be spared a martyr's death. And it's by miracle that the Apostle John didn't die. On you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Only justice remains. Rome would come and would destroy this old regime system with violence and destruction, not one stone of the temple would remain. And all of this, the consequence of ignoring the corrective voice of God. It's a rescuing voice. It's a prohibitive voice. It's proactive. But they wouldn't listen. Through the servants and ultimately through the voice of God's Son. Doesn't it make you think, how could they become so calloused? How could they be so opposed to correction? And, friends, that's the warning. As a pastor, I see this fairly regularly it's frustrating, it breaks our hearts. That God's rescuing corrective voice could be dismissed so quickly because of someone's stiff neckedness. It's a danger. It's a poison. It's a plight. It's a disease. And I hate it because I see it most often with the righteous enough folk. It's those not too different from these leaders. It's when Dedicated religious service gets combined with an overestimated view of one's own goodness. And it becomes a recipe for callousness. Religious service is not bad. I'm wearing a robe. I get it. But when we overestimate our own goodness, And think we are righteous in and of ourselves. We no longer accept the righteousness outside of us. And that is the death of the gospel. All because of callousness. God says it's the broken and contrite heart that he won't despise. Psalm 51, 17. He says the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. In Matthew 5, 1. He says he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the lowly in heart in James 4, 6. So friends, this is a great danger. If you are a person who cannot be corrected, you will not be convicted. And if you cannot be convicted, you will not be converted. And if you will not be converted, you will never be set free to enjoy the mercy of God. Beware a spirit of callousness to God's corrective voice in your life. But that's not the only implicit warning here. There's also a warning against the spirit of indifference to God's mercy. They go hand in hand. Continue reading with me in the parable. So the owner sent another. This is verse five. And him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat. Some they killed. But he still had one other. A beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. As I mentioned with the first warning, servant after servant after servant is sent. But each one is not just an embodiment of a corrective voice. Each one is also a signpost of mercy. The the owner could enact justice after the first servant is killed, but he delays justice. And he sends another who is killed and sends another who is killed and sends another who is killed and another and another. He's choosing not initially the path of justice, but the path of mercy. He's giving them another opportunity and another opportunity, Tim, over and over and over again to share with him the gospel. Please, please, please. And it's rejected over and over again by the tenants, each embodiment, embodiment of mercy sent their way. They reject. And in the time that Jesus spoke this parable, it was common for a wealthy foreign landowner to have tenants to whom he would lease out his land and they would work the land. And then the goal was that the two of them or the many of them and the owner would share in the produce. And so it was not too uncommon to see that there was a miniature revolt from these tenant farmers because of the sense of entitlement we hear here. They're the ones doing the work day in and day out, working the land. The owner's doing nothing. But what was uncommon is the response. What they would expect from the landowner in this instance and all the hearers, and it's why it incites anger, is that this wealthy landowner would hire himself a small militia or a band of assassins. And he would go to quelch that rebellion as quickly as possible, even if it meant taking the tenants' lives. And it was lawful and it was seen as appropriate because rebellious tenants needed to be brought to justice. That's not what happened. What happened to them was unjustifiable in their estimation, The owner repeatedly offers mercy and sends servant after servant after servant. To say it differently, the ludicrous act of the owner is that he suspends justice instead of enacting it. When we read this parable, we often only see judgment. The hearers of that day would actually have seen this as an outlandish display of mercy. And yet the tenants are totally indifferent to the owner's outlandish acts of forbearance, his repetitive attempts to show them mercy. And the spiritual elite of Israel are not only callous to his corrective voice, they're dismissive and indifferent towards his mercy. They presume on it. The apostle Paul borrows this and says, so do we. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and life. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will finally be revealed." Listen, friends, there's a great danger here. It's not just ignoring the corrective voice of God. Don't presume upon the mercy of God. Avail yourself to it. It's boundless and free. Do not take for granted what you have not earned and do not deserve. These tenants did that. Don't follow their lead. Their joy should have come in sharing in the joy of the owner from the fruits of the land because they tended with mercy and justice over their people. but they reject him. They were indifferent. Church, if, if you are a person who is indifferent towards mercy, you will never recognize your sin. And if you do not recognize your sin, you will not be freed from its judgment. And if you are not freed from its judgment, you will never know fullness of life, this side of heaven or the next. His corrective voice and his rep- offer of mercy is meant to set you free, to bring into you newness of life and praise God that he suspends judgment. But beware a spirit of indifference towards his mercy. And so I want to close with a word of encouragement after two warnings. It's couched actually in the only confusing part in this parable, and you may have missed it. It's not the behavior of the tenants, it's actually the decision of the owner. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, he had still one other, a beloved son, and finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. We learn something in this portion of the parable and it's confounding. The owner in the parable is also a father. And he does something seemingly foolish, even careless. Fathers in the room, what kind of father would send his beloved son to these people? They have killed servant after servant after servant. What kind of father is going to now sacrifice his beloved son? It's ludicrous. It's outlandish. It's foolish. It seems careless but it tells us something about the heart of the Father. He doesn't form an army. He doesn't form a militia. He delays justice and he sends his beloved son in the place of justice. They kill him. It tells us they shamefully kill him. The owner who is a father clearly and blatantly overextends mercy and it gives us a window into the heart of God. (laughs) He's the kind of father who would delay judgment and sacrifice his only son in order to show mercy. And we know this not just from this parable, but from God's self-revelation of himself long ago in Exodus 34. Listen to this. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name for the first time. And he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But I will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. God's self-revelation declares that his default is mercy to the thousandth generation. It's mercy without sacrificing justice to the fourth generation. This is not a New Testament idea of what we know of the grace of Jesus Christ, and it changes the view that we have of God the Father. From the first time he reveals himself, the first two words he uses, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious to the thousandth generation. And we know this is true because it became almost creedal for the people of the Old Testament that they would repeat this over and over again and sing it. It's the central part of the the hymn book of the people of God. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's in Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 5, 2 Chronicles 30, Nehemiah 9, all throughout the Psalms, Joel 2, Jonah 4, Nahum 1, over and over again, even through the mouth of the prophets. Mercy abounds, and justice is delayed. Dane Ortland, a PCA pastor and author who wrote a book called Gentle and Lonely, he puts it this way. Our deepest instincts expect God to be thundering, gavel swinging, judgment relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy, merciful and gracious. These are the first words out of God's own mouth after proclaiming his name. The first words. And the first two words God uses is to describe who he is. Does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord exacting and precise. Or the Lord, the Lord tolerant and overlooking. Or the Lord, the Lord disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority and deepest delight and first reaction. His heart is merciful and gracious and he's slow to anger. Listen to this. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out God's anger. Unlike us who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times, but not once are we told that God is provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Yahweh needs no provoking to mercy, only to anger. He abounds in mercy without sacrificing justice. And we know how this can be. The owner who is a father made a way for justice to be satisfied and mercy to be given through the sacrifice of his beloved son. The very one speaking this parable is the embodiment of mercy and justice. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the justified in him. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Romans 5, 6 through 8. He's ready for you, friends. He delights to show you mercy. But you must repent from a spirit of callousness. And you must repent from an indifference towards his saving and atoning work. You don't need to provoke him to mercy. His heart is full of it. We're about to sing this phrase. Let us wonder, grace, and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Feel it or not, well aware or not, you are wholly and completely dependent upon his divine mercy for fullness of life, and he is ready and willing to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment, and as you delay, may we not take it for granted may we find ourselves safe and secure in the beloved son who gave his own life and may we then extend that kind of softness and mercy to those around us even those most unlike us or we seem we think seem most unworthy and so for those who need your mercy this morning may they receive it through faith and then those who need to give it may they be challenged like these leaders in Israel to no longer be calloused, but to be softened in their hearts. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.